Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Benjamin Lewin on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm fine. Very good to be here. Nice to have you here. Thank you. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in London. Oh, what was that like? London. London in the 50s and 60s. It was a time when there was a real culture of meritocracy up to a point. So a bright kid without a moneyed background, for example, could go to a grammar school, get a good education, and go to a top university. On the other hand, if you were Jewish, there was always a sense that you didn't quite fit into society. A little bit of sense of being not exactly on the outs of society, but not being fully integrated with it. So I would say, in terms of what it's like in England today, swings and roundabouts. Today, you have a much more open society. Background doesn't matter. You can be Jewish, you can be Muslim. You know, it doesn't make that much difference in a polyglot society. On the other hand, there isn't quite the same sense of meritocracy, and the route to the top through the grammar schools has been not exactly closed off, but made more difficult. So I would say on balance, I feel I grew up at a time in England when it was a good time to be in England because you got a good education. Uh, what the educational system taught you was how to think, how to be logical, how to function. Yes, there was a certain amount of rote learning, which you wouldn't do today. But on the other hand, behind it was always the sense of this is what you are learning is how you solve a question. Not the answer, but how you solve it. And that was what I took away from my education in Britain. And honestly, it's been a great thing ever since. What was your family like? My father was a biochemist. So that was the science background of the family. My mother was an English teacher. My father was a first-generation immigrant to England. And my mother would be second-generation. Her parents came to England in, I don't know where, 1910, I suppose, roughly. And they were from Palestine, your, your My father side. came from Palestine. His father had emigrated from Russia to Palestine. My mother's family came from Russia, I think, as I said, around 1910. You also went into science, like your dad. I went into science. I followed my father in. You know, this is one of the things I sort of partially regret about England, that you felt, you felt a little bit constrained to follow the family background more than you would in the United States, and possibly actually more than you would today. I don't really know. But there was always science being talked in the household. I grew up at a point, you know, when the structure of DNA was discovered and all that was very exciting. And that was more or less the point when science first hit the published consciousness. So for me, it was quite natural to look for something which was intellectually challenging and it seemed to be science. And I must say, I had a good time in science for something like 30 years. 
I decided fairly early on that I didn't want to be a research scientist for two reasons, really, I think. One was that I didn't fancy the lifestyle, you know, the absolute immersion in the lab uh, as close to 24 hours a day as you could get. I just didn't think that was quality of life. And more intellectually, because it seemed to me that focusing on one problem, which got narrower and narrower and narrower, was not so interesting. What's interesting is the whole gestalt. And that's why I moved into the era of scientific publishing, where you know I f- could involve myself in a wide range of topics of science, all of which were intellectually stimulating, but without getting bogged down with, you know, I've got to solve this one, one single problem. On one day, you could be thinking about one problem, and the next day, you could be reading another paper or thinking about another problem. Well, uh, even more fluently than that, so I ran a scientific journal called Cell, and Cell was a general journal of biology. And so you, in a given morning, you would get maybe 10 papers, and everyone would be on a different topic. That's pretty challenging, because for a start, you can't possibly know about all those topics. For another, the people who wrote them know far more about that topic than you do, but you have to judge it. You have to find other people who know about it competently can judge it. So that was very challenging. I can only imagine, but you were quite successful at it. Cell was very successful, yes. Uh, Honestly, think you could say cell was the publishing phenomenon in science of the second half of the 20th century. And what do you think contributed so much to its success? I think it was a couple of things. When we started doing this, scientific journals were very staid, very stuffy. And you had a really difficult choice if you had a, an important discovery. You could publish it in Nature or Science. Those were really the two general journals. And you could publish it quite quickly, quite quickly in this context being a few months, maybe three months, maybe four months. But you would have to publish it in a very truncated form, which didn't give any of the details needed to reproduce the work. You'd basically have to say, we did this work, and these are our results. But in effect, you would be saying to the reader, trust us that we knew what we were doing. Or you could publish a full scientific paper with what was called a materials and methods section, which detailed how you did everything, um, in theory, in principle, to the point at which somebody else could reproduce the work from those details. But you'll be looking at 18 months to publication. That was a pretty nasty choice. So we said... Let's run a journal where you can publish all the details and we'll do it fast. So the aim was publish everything in under three months. We usually would do it in about two months from when we accepted a paper. We said we'll do a fast review process. Uh, We won't let the review process got bogged down. So you can submit a paper. We'll consider it. We may reject it or accept it. If we accept it, fine. If we reject it, you'll have one chance to revise it to satisfactory standard. And that's it. After that, you're out. Uh, So the decision taking process was very incisive and very fast, and publication was very fast. And it was, cell started in 74. By the end of the year, it was attracting reputation. And by the end of the decade, it was the most important biology journal. And it was a challenger to nature and science, which were the general journals. It was a very good period to be in science because things were breaking every week. There were totally unexpected developments coming along. Things you had never thought could possibly be true turned out to be true. Things you had held as long accepted truths turned out to be false. It was a wonderful period to be in science. Like that and when Galileo was around were kind of the key times. I don't remember <laughs> Galileo very well. <laughs> right. Well, it just seems like from what I hear, you know. But it, So the key was really that the contributors wanted to come to you. They really found that your process worked better for what they wanted to accomplish. Uh, and so you were attracting the best well, papers. The thing about science is that... Most of the people doing the work are, relatively speaking, at an early stage of their career. And what they're looking for is to have impressive enough publications so they get tenure. And so where you want to be published is somewhere which has an imprimatur of this is high quality, this is not merely technical stuff, but this has general interest. It really advances uh, our intellectual understanding of science. 
And Selv rapidly acquired a reputation and imprimatur for providing that. So it was very important to people to be published in Cell, or to be fair, in Nature or Science, um, rather than the Journal of Molecular Biology, which would be a guarantee that the work was technically sound, but not a guarantee that the person who had done it had, let us say, imagination. And you actually started up a number of journals. We did, because as, as things developed, Cell was uh, our general journal. Anything, anything really in biology, well, anything in biology towards the cellular level, certainly. But as things developed, I formed the view that the next new frontier after molecular biology was going to be neuroscience. I was probably about a decade or maybe two decades too early with that, but it seemed to me that there were going to be many, many interesting papers in neuroscience, but it was going to be a while, if you like, before they all reached a standard of general interest. And I thought we needed a journal to do that. So the first journal we started was called Neuron. Um, Matt took on, on neurosciences. We later started a journal called Immunity to deal with immunology. And then when the pressure on cells simply became so great that we couldn't reasonably contain it, and we were turning away many really good papers, but we didn't quite cut the mustard for cell. We started a journal called Molecular Cell, which took those papers. So, yeah, we had a, we had a stable of journals. They ran independently, each with its own editor and so on. In fact, Neuron started with outside editors and later came in-house. Immunity always had outside editors. We were thinking about bringing it in-house at the point when I left Cell. And Molecular Cell ran in conjunction with Cell. But we had a, a small stable. Today, this is quite common. Many, many, I mean, Nature must have, oh, I don't know, 20 or 30 subsidiary journals. At that time, it was not so common. What you did actually was you've led it out of the university and into its own press. Yes. We started at MIT Press, and we started publishing on a monthly basis. And by 1985, it was clear that in order for us to be competitive, to deal with the volume, the individual issues were getting pretty large. Uh, we needed to publish more frequently. I wanted to publish every other week. And MIT Press simply didn't have the space available for us to hire the extra people we needed to do that. So that was the big impetus for moving out. We just had to have more space and more facilities. And what was it like running your own press? I mean, being in charge of It was of great. We didn't have any of what you might call sort of the bureaucratic nonsense. Um, you know, MIT is a big organization. They need a bureaucracy to look after themselves. But that's not what you want when you're running a small operation, which cell, cell press was. Uh, you want to get on with it. You need to hire somebody. You need to hire them right now. You don't need to jump through some sort of procedure. It was a very, uh, what would you say, a very freeing experience, I suppose. But it seems like throughout your whole career, I mean, you've been on fire. Like you're making, <laughs> I mean, you're making things happen. I mean, you've, it's only been, what, 12 years in the wine business and you've you done like five, six well, books. Well, maybe like it's that. just that I get bored very easily. So I need constant intellectual stimulation to keep going. At some point, you published a textbook on genes. Yes, I did. I wrote a couple. No, I wrote three relatively technical. Well, technical is the wrong word. I wrote three books at a postgraduate level called The Molecular Basis of Gene Expression. It was a series of books on different aspects of molecular biology. And then around, you know, I'm blanking a bit on when it happened, but it must have been late 70s. Um, it became apparent that there were unifying threads in what was the traditional sort of molecular biology to deal with microorganisms and the developing biology of the cell. And that was the impetus for writing a book which I called Genes, which basically treated both aspects as being part of the same gestalt. And that was very successful. And I wrote Genes through, I can't remember how many now, nine or ten editions. 
basically revising it about every three years and towards the end every two years because so much was happening it was always out of date because i remember you know richard dawkins in a way kind of picked up that thread later when he did the selfish gene and kind of looked at evolution through at the gene selfish level. gene was a great idea very different um but you know i think a really good example of lateral thinking nobody has thought before about the gene as an end in itself as a means i thought it was a very ingenious concept and you you i think it has actually influenced people's thinking about evolution a lot more than they realize. It's become part of the common parlance. So it's almost an idea now which is just seen as natural and which is accepted. You, you wouldn't argue about it. Those are usually the good ones, right? Yes, it's too, it's too, too obvious, you might say, but no one had thought of it before. And at some point, you must have realized that the textbook business could be a pretty good publishing side of the business. It's a very lucrative side, as the big publishers will tell you. And it's got more and more lucrative because they publish now not only textbooks, but ancillary material, guidebooks, question books, anything, and lots of, lots of digital formats, of course, to go with. So textbooks are very lucrative. But I don't... Text, doing a textbook on molecular biology was interesting because molecular biology was moving so fast that every edition had many new things relative to the previous edition. And it was a challenge both to keep up with the field and to sort out what was right and what was wrong. You've got to remember when you're moving that fast, quite a lot of stuff comes out that turns out later to be wrong. And you don't really want to put out a textbook which tells a generation of students that something is true when by the time they actually get the book, it is no longer true. So that was really very challenging. When I read your wine books today, sometimes I think, oh, this could be a textbook. I think there's an element of it about them. Um, I certainly didn't set out to write textbooks in wine, but I do have a view... Wine is not, a given wine is not like it is, simply because you took grapes of a given type and you turned them into wine. So you make Cabernet Sauvignon in Bordeaux, you make Cabernet Sauvignon in Napa. The wines are really pretty different. It's not just because the climate's different and the terroir's different. It's not even just because they do more blending in Bordeaux than they do in Napa. It's because there's a whole history in each place of what people think wine should be like. The American palate is probably different enough from the French palate that that has an influence. There are different expectations. If you talk to wine producers in Bordeaux and Napa, or for that matter, anywhere in the world, and you ask, what are your criterion for picking grapes? The answer is always the same, phenolic ripeness. So they've all got the same criterion, but the answers are quite different. I mean, alcohol levels are different, the taste is different, the level of extraction is different. And, and, and the basic thesis that runs through all of my books is that this is due to um, not just technical things, but due to what you might call uh, socioeconomic um, factors, market forces, the history of people in the area. Um, and I try to look at all of the factors that go into why does a wine taste like it does. That was sort of explicitly stated in Wine, Myths, and Reality, which is a book you wrote, where you said, we're going to look at why wine tastes like it does, kind of like almost sort of a, a reverse detective novel from the glass there's a sense of that and the process for writing that book goes back somewhat actually to the mw the master of wine where when you do a masters of wine it's considered to be very analytical in the sense that there are exams which are both theoretical and practical but it's not so much about getting the answer right it's about getting the analytical process right so you can Pass the tasting exam if you get half the wines right. It's more or less what I did. You can fail it if you get two-thirds of them right. Because it's no good saying 
any idiot can see this is a Sauvignon Blanc from Chile or, or whatever. If in fact you're right, that's wonderful, but no one knows why you're right. And if you're wrong, of course, you're screwed. Um, but the point is that it's about the analytical process. It's about um, working out why is this wine like it is. What I took out of the MW program was a strong sense of analysis towards wine, which I hadn't had before. And I think that's what comes out in Myths and Reality. I'm going to analyze the process. So Myths and Reality is a worldwide survey which starts with viticulture and to what extent viticulture influences the type of wine you make. Goes through vinification, looks at the different types of things you can do in vinification, how that influences the wine. Considers the wine trade a little bit because there are market forces everywhere applying to what sort of wine do you want to make. And then, of course, I consider geographically all the various regions of the world and, and, and why are the wines like they are. But what I'm using is the same sort of set of analytical tools all the way through. And it feels like that's carried all the way through from your original grammar school career to when you were in publishing and you said, well, we're going to include the methods in the papers. We want to include how they got there. And then later with the MW work, right? I, mean, I had never thought of it quite like that. But I think that's true. I have a sort of basic belief, which has run all the way through my education from sort of grammar school level through university to postgraduate, that it's not the answer that matters. It's the questions you ask and how you get to the answer. Show me your work, basically, is what the teachers that I had used to that's say. That's right. You know? That's right. They, they used to say when we were doing our exams in England, show your workings. So that if you make a mistake, you will at least get some credit for what you did that was right along the way. So how did you make the switch from the science field to the wine field? I started by doing qualification from the WSET in England, the diploma, which I was in Boston at the time, was a two-year process. And during that process, I learned a lot about wine. And it was a, a jumping off ground, really, for thinking about did I want to take this further and where would I take it? Uh, I was thinking about doing an MW, but hadn't quite decided when one of the other people on the program uh, went into the MW program. He's, during his first year, he told me that he was having a good time and he thought it was interest me. And so I joined the MW program. And that was my f The WCD diploma was my first sort of formal exposure to wine as a medium you might study, if you like. But that's um, a, a fairly high level. I mean, that's the first introduction to wine? Was there some, I mean... Ah, yes. So the WSET has a whole series of, of levels of programs. And I, I know you, you said before, I always seem to be doing something in a sort of agitated manner. It is true that normally you would not be admitted directly to the diploma. Uh, I persuaded them to admit me on the grounds that I had got enough prior experience with wine not to need to go through the earlier stages of the program. How did you persuade them of that? Well, Bill Nesto, who was the MW who taught the program, was influential. He said, I think we can do this. You don't need to go through all the earlier stages. And he talked to the WACT, and they came up with a compromise, which was that I would take the exam for the level that preceded the diploma and... If I passed that exam, I could do the diploma. Of course, there wasn't time to do that first. So the deal was that I started the diploma, and about, oh, I don't know, eight or ten weeks into the diploma, the time came to take the exam. And the deal was that I would drop out of the diploma if I failed the exam. And if I passed it, it was okay to proceed. It made things a little bit tense, because I was under strict instructions from the WSED not to tell anybody they had made this exception. So the other people in the class viewed me with not exactly suspicion, but they wondered where I had come from, since all of them had done the previous program together and then moved into the diploma, and I appeared. Um, it, it made things a little bit 
a little bit tense, but once I had passed the previous um, qualification, it was fine. What was it like taking the class in Boston as opposed to London? I feel like a lot of the MWs went through the London course. I think you miss a certain amount. Um, I didn't feel this so much with the WSET because I didn't experience their classes in London. But the MW program, which is a program basically you, you study on your own, but you go to a one-week seminar each year. And that seminar is held in, well, actually is held in Europe, in Bordeaux, or it's held in Australia, or it's held in Napa Valley. And of course, since I was on the east coast of the US at the time, living there, the obvious place to go was Napa. And I went to Napa Valley the first year. And became apparent to me that I wasn't quite grasping what was required in terms of passing the tasting exam. And so the next year, I went to the program in Bordeaux. And I must say, I found a difference, which was it was much easier to understand what was required. It was not just an issue of instruction. It was that when you take the program in the United States, unless you're very lucky, you're pretty much on your own. There was a group doing it in New York, but it wasn't a very big group, and they didn't meet very regularly. And there's a group doing it in Napa. But basically, otherwise, if you're outside of London, you're on your own. Whereas in London, there are so many people doing the program that they form tasting groups, they form theory discussion groups. I went to some of those whenever I was in London. I think that is what made the difference. And I think it made a difference to the seminar because the students were so much more informed. They brought out of the instructors information that we didn't get in Napa because no one was asking the questions to elicit it. How long did it take you to get all the way through? Four years. So I spent the first year doing the program. The next year, I was nominally in the program. And in fact, I was moving house from Boston to New York. So really nothing much got accomplished. And then the next year was nominally my second, basically MW candidates. And the MW program is divided to first year and second year. And the second year includes anybody who might be in their third or fourth year. So my third, my third calendar year was really my second year in the program. Took the exams at the end of that year and passed them. And after that, you have to do a dissertation, which is a one-year process. So I did the dissertation, the dissertation passed, and that's when you become an MW. But why wine? I mean, why not chess or you know, some other writing field? When you move from science to wine, why did you pick wine? I've always been interested in wine. I can't tell you why, because it wasn't really in the family background. Um, Middle-class families in Britain at that time, I don't think were very interested in wine. My parents would have wine when they had a dinner party, when they had friends around, but they wouldn't drink it by themselves as a matter of routine. Um, but for some reason, while I was going through school in England, I became interested in wine. I was going to wine tastings when I was sort of 16 or 17. Yes, I know this would be illegal in the United States, and very silly that is too. Um, and I've always, I've always been interested to the point that at least 20, 30 years ago, I decided that if I gave up science, I had no intention of giving up science, but I said if I were to give up science, I would try to do an MW because it would be interesting. It's, um, it's partly that it's an intellectual challenge. It's partly that it is, what would you call it, a gustatory challenge. Um, it's, a real, it's a really intriguing combination of things. You've got to be able to taste well, but you also have to understand what you are tasting. And for I can't really tell you why. For whatever reason, this really appealed to me as a combination. What I like about it, I like two things about it, I think. One is that I start investigating some aspect. Maybe I'm writing a chapter in my book. Maybe I'm writing an article for a magazine. I start on that in the morning, and in the evening, I'm somewhere totally different because one thread has led to another, and I never know where I'm going to end up. I find that really interesting. And the other aspect is that I know I'm never going to master it. 
the moment you think you've mastered some aspect of wine, you taste a bottle, and my God, there's something you didn't know about at all. This morning, for example, I tasted a wine from Chile, which is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It comes from a new producer called Vic. And it was wonderfully smooth and silky, and if I had had it blind, I would have said Cabernet Franc. And I wouldn't even have been very much in doubt about it. I would have said, this is a Cabernet Franc, and it's probably from Saint-Emilion. Uh, so, you know, one gets these, these moments where you have a wine which comes from one place and one variety, and you think it's something totally different. Even when you know and you're analyzing it, you're still trying to work out, how did this happen? Why is this? And it doesn't matter how long you do this, these experiences are going to keep coming. And I think that's just great. But I mean, that sense of dislocation is something that's been part of your physical reality, too. I mean, you lived in London for a while. You lived in different venues through well, different universities. Well, we pretty much lived on the East Coast of the United States for the last 30 or 40 years. I mean, spend time elsewhere. Obviously, if you write about wine, you're going to travel and talk to wine producers. So we spend a lot of time traveling and talking to wine producers. Uh, where that is depends which book I'm writing. When I was writing the book on Pinot Noir, you know, I spent a lot of time in places that make Pinot Noir. When I was writing on Cabernet Sauvignon, I was out in Napa Valley, and I was down in South America, and, and so on and so forth. The last book was on the wines of France, so I spent a lot of the last two years in France visiting producers there. So yes, but basically, I mean, where, where we spend most of our time is the East Coast of the United States. Did you see wine approached differently, either in consumption or just in how people thought about it in the different places you lived at different times? I don't think so, because certainly at the level of talking to people who are involved in wine, there's a sort of commonality. I mean, it's still viewed with suspicion in the United States that you can't get a drink under 21. I mean, I, I know this is going all the way back to, to prohibition. We have a very funny relationship with alcohol in this country. That's different. But does that affect what sort of wine you are looking for and how you taste it? Um, I don't think so. The palate does, probably. I mean, look, there are people differ. There are people who love these big, powerful, extracted wines what you might normally call a 100-point Parker wine. People, there are some people who like those. There are some people who hate them, prefer wines that are more austere, uh, more elegant, less alcoholic. Do those tastes differ in a national way? I'm, I think you'd really have to think hard about that. The answer is, I don't know. Did it seem as, as apparent that people differed at the beginning of your career with wine? I sometimes think that it was less accepted as an idea, the multiculturalism of palates that you see now. When I started being interested in wine, let's say in the 1970s, there was an assumption that wine was French. So the model for a wine based on Cabernet Sauvignon would be the left bank of Bordeaux. And indeed, Napa Valley in the 1970s, its objective was to make wines that tasted like Bordeaux. The feeling was we've got a good climate, we've got the right sort of soil and the right sort of climate for this grape same grape that they grow in Bordeaux, and we can do it just as well, if not better. But the objective was to do what they did in Bordeaux and do it just as well or not better. Now, today, Napa Valley's gone its own way. It's making its own wines. In fact, you might say that Bordeaux is trying to emulate Napa Valley with this move to, to, to a richer, riper, more extracted style. Um, but there was certainly, at the beginning of all this, a sense that wine is defined by the French. And Today, I don't think people feel that sort of constraint. You're making a wine in Chile, you feel that you can express the Chilean experience. One of the things that you addressed in your latest book, which is Wines of France, A Guide to 500 Leading Vineyards, is that idea of French wines being challenged by the new world 
and also a decline in France of both hectares and producers. I thought that was really interesting, just all, how much it declined. All of this is true. France was, well, the starting point of the book is to ask, France was the essential reference point. Is it still the essential reference point? If it is, why is it? And if it's not, why is it not? To support the first part of the argument, you only have to look at what grape varieties are now grown predominantly in the New World. We're talking at the level of quality wine here. And the answer is Cabernet Sauvignon, which comes from Bordeaux, Chardonnay, which comes from Burgundy, Merlot, which comes from Bordeaux, Syrah, or Shiraz as it is in Australia, which comes from the Rhone, Sauvignon Blanc, which comes from the Loire. Basically, the New World is based, its wines, pretty much exclusively on French varieties. So in that sense, France has exported itself very successfully. There are, of course, great wines made elsewhere, in Spain, in Portugal, in Italy, but the varieties have never been exported successfully, not anywhere else. France has this unique quality that it has been the reference point. And I think it's true that everywhere that people took the grape varieties from France, when they started to plant them and to make wine, the objective was to make something like the French had made, because that was the defining quality. And over the years, we have seen that break away. So Shiraz in Australia is a much more powerful wine than, than Syrah from the Northern Rhone. Sauvignon Blanc from Australia is a much more aggressive wine, you might say, a much more forceful wine than Sauvignon Blanc from the Loire. And this is true of pretty much every variety. So very slowly, the new world has broken away. It's defined its own identity. And what I ask in the book is, is let's go back to France. Let's see what they are doing in France now. Let's see whether there has been a reciprocal relationship between the New World and France, whether France has now adjusted. And indeed, it has in some cases. So in the Loire, for example, Sancerre today can be quite a fruity wine. The old Sancerres, which used to be thin, acidic, punishing with that sort of sense of cat's pee to them, that's all gone. Uh, and what's the influence? If you ask the producers, of course, they say, ah, oh, well, climate warming has made a big difference. We are getting the grapes riper and so on and so forth. Um, they will also say, and we make wine just like our grandfather made it. So a little bit of a conflict there, but never mind. Um, the influence is clearly that the New World has shown that you can take this variety, which only made a thin acid wine in its native habitat, and you can turn it into something much richer. And that's, so there has been a reciprocal influence in that the New World has, has fed back to France, and France has changed in response. And so, you know, the question of my book is, what are French wines like today? How have they come to be like that? How has the New World influenced them? How has the French sense of what they call patrimony contributed to keeping the wines the same? And one of the things you expand upon on the book is that the definition of traditional and modern tends to vary with whoever you happen to be talking to. Yes. If at one point I was going to call the book The Wines of Modern France to emphasize that it was looking at France today, and producers really objected to this, a typical producer would say, you have come to see me. Your book is called Wines of Modern France, but I am not a modern producer. And what they mean by modern in France is industrial. It's taken as a synonym for modern techniques to the point of, of mechanized vineyards, much manipulation in vinification, and making a wine which doesn't really reflect its place of origin, but which more reflects the hand of the winemaker in making it. That's what they see as a modern wine. Producers who are making wines which they see as representing the place they come from, representing the tradition they come from, see themselves as artisanal. 
And more than one producer said to me, the difference is really not between modern wines and traditional wines. It's between artisanal and industrial wines. So that's their perspective. What was your first book? The first book was called What Price Bordeaux? Bordeaux is a very commercial market. So everywhere else in France, it is the vineyards that are classified on the basis that this particular plot of land can give wine with this particular potential. So you divide wine into Burgundy and village level, premier crew level, grand crew level, fine. In Bordeaux, there was a classification in 1855 of the great chateaus of the Medoc, where it was the producers, the chateaus, who were classified. And this connects with the fact that Bordeaux has an unusual system for selling its wines. It's a very commercial marketplace, very controlled. And so Bordeaux is completely different from everywhere else. And I thought it would be interesting to look at how has the difference in the commercial background in the marketplace for the wines influence what sort of wine you make. And what was your reception when you went to study for that book, when you went to do the underground research? I have to say I was received cautiously. So the 1855 classification is hallowed ground in Bordeaux. If you ask a chateau owner, are your vineyards today the same as they were in 1855? Or if you want to be more tactful, you put it how have your vineyards changed since 1855? You get a pretty frigid response in most cases. They do not wish to give you that information. In fact, it's you can work out more or less what has happened to each chateau in an approximate sort of way. And a very small number of them have the same vineyards they had in 1855. Most of them have changed very significantly. Very often they have doubled or trebled in size, but yet they have the same classification. That's why it's such a sensitive subject. In effect, your classification is your valuation. And anything that challenges it, like looking at how has the basis on which you were classified changed since you were classified, that's a little bit of a threat. A little bit of brushback against when you tried to ask the questions that you didn't always get the answers that would have been helpful. Well, a little bit. But the French, you know, are very charming. And they have a very, very sweet way with them. And you ask a question they didn't wish to answer. They don't say that's a rude question. They don't say, I don't wish to answer that. They just tell you something else. And something interesting and sort of slightly relevant. And so I learned a lot of interesting things talking to people in Bordeaux. I wasn't able directly to explore the issue of how each shadow had changed since uh, it had been classified. But I was able to establish on an overall basis what had happened. And by and large, I would say the reception was pretty good. Most wine producers are pleased to have people interested in their work. And the general reaction is actually pretty receptive. They may say, look, we think you're a little bit on the wrong tack with this or that question. But the general reaction is we're really pleased that somebody is looking at what we do and appreciates it. And they're happy to talk. Now, price is in the title. Did it concern some of the price changes that have happened in Bordeaux in the last few years? Bordeaux has had such a dramatic history of price changes and boom and bust cycles. But yes, it did look at that. So... The reason Bordeaux is very prone to boom and bust cycles is that the chateaus do not sell their wine directly to consumers. They sell their wine into a local marketplace, in effect, and that local marketplace then sells it to distributors who then sell it on to wine shops who sell it to consumers. The chateaus themselves are pretty disconnected from their ultimate purchaser, and that has led to some dramatic boom and bust cycles when they have misjudged the mood of the market and set a price that was too high and people couldn't pay it. It was a famous one in 1973 when a fair number of the major players in Bordeaux went bust, not the chateaus actually, but the negociants, because they loaded up on wines that they couldn't pass on. 
So I looked at what effect that has on the wine and on the consumer. Let me go backwards. When the 1855 classification was made, wines were divided into five categories. And the top category were wines that sold for about 15 to 20% more than the second category, and so on all the way down the scale. Sometime around the 1990s, these bands began to diverge. And now it has reached the point where the top categories are four or five times the second categories, which are also three or four times the next category. So you're looking at an absolutely huge spread between the top wines in the classification and the lower wines in the classification. Now, clearly, on most, most occasions, the top wines are better, but are they 10 times better? Probably not. I mean, I think the differential is more than that now. Well, the top wines have become luxury items. They're often now bought for investment purposes, for trading purposes. They're not actually bought by consumers who want to drink them. When I was growing up, if you were an ordinary middle-class person, and what you wanted to do with your discretionary income was buy wine, you could probably buy very good wine. Maybe you wouldn't buy first-growth claret, but you would probably buy second-growth claret. Today, you'd be lucky to buy any growth claret. The prices have just gone out of sight. This is a great shame because it means the wines are not being purchased by people who care about them as wine. They're being purchased by people who care about them as an investment commodity. If you track the price of the first growth clarets and compare it with the price of impressionist art at art auctions, they run exactly parallel. They go up sharply as the economy booms. They crash back when there's a recession. They go up again. This is a pretty fair proof that wine at the top level has become an investment item. Personally, I think that's a great shame. You talk in your latest book, Wines of France, about how the type of owner has changed, where it's always been wealthy people getting interested in Bordeaux, perhaps buying a chateau to leverage a reputation, investing money, and then maybe they lose their fortune through generations or they lose interest and the the cycle begins again. But this time, it seems like the scale of what's happening is bigger, both in the profits that are being made and in the wealth that's being entered into the market from the owners. There are a couple of changes. It's always been the case at the top level in Bordeaux that people have come in, bought a chateau, poured money in, got a lot of prestige from it, and then either lost interest or run out of money, and it's moved on to the next cycle. Someone else has come in and bought it and so on. One change about 20 years ago was that companies started buying chateaus as opposed to individuals, large insurance companies, other companies who thought it would be a good investment. Instead of having a person who is passionate about the wine owning the company, it is part of a conglomerate, part of a more amorphous holding. The other change is that it used to be that there was an old joke that the way to make a small fortune in the wine business was to start with a large one. That's changed to the extent now that there are people who have actually made a lot of money in wine. And if you look at the list of the 500 richest people in France or whatever, and then you correlate that with who owns wine properties, Chateaus in Bordeaux or elsewhere. The list is divided between rich people who decided they wanted to buy wine and people who are making wine and became rich because their wine was very successful. This is a new development altogether. I mean, good luck to them, right? If you can make really good wine, why why shouldn't you make some money at it? I think that's absolutely fine. Where I hesitate about it is when the wine ceases to be the main objective and it's the return on investment. This is now something which has spread. It used to really be that Bordeaux was the place where people would invest in wine or make money at it or lose money at it. And now we've seen this happening in Burgundy. And the consequence of people coming into Burgundy to invest in it is that the price of land has been pushed up. 
And the consequence of that is that new growers cannot afford to buy property in Burgundy. They can't afford to buy the vineyards. Actually, there are two consequences. One is that the new young people can't afford to buy vineyards, which is something they used to be able to do. And the other is that when someone dies and an estate is divided up, in order to pay the inheritance taxes, they often have to sell it off. So it's both difficult to keep family estates together and difficult for new people to come in. And this is, I think, a cause for concern because someone like Burgundy has always had the charm that it has had lots of small, very dedicated growers. And if they are replaced by larger organizations as a result of market forces, we will see a change in the character of Burgundy. And in both cases, I think in the Bordeaux example and the Burgundy example, there's often a reluctance to acknowledge the profits or the costs. Like, I don't see a lot of people who've made a lot of money in the wine business trumpeting that fact. Usually when you talk to them, they say something along the lines of, well, I'm just a humble farmer. Yes. You know? In Burgundy, you almost never see evidence of money. If you visit the Grand Chateaus in France, some of them now have um, calves with you know, marble floors. They look very fancy. They have little museums and things like that. So you, you see some evidence of the prosperity. On the other hand, it's restricted to a pretty narrow band. If you go to the little towns in Bordeaux, you don't see huge prosperity around. The town of Poillac, which after all has some of the most famous wines of the world in its vineyards, was really shabby until just about 10 years ago. It's only in the, maybe in the last decade that it's begun to look anything other than really shabby. So there's not much trickle down. And you have to remember when you, you talk about Bordeaux and these enormously expensive wines at the top level, that at the bottom level, at the level of generic Bordeaux, they have a real problem, which is the cost of production is greater than the cost they can sell the bottle for in the shop. So we've got very much of a split identity in Bordeaux. This is not quite so true anywhere else. In Burgundy, there is more evenness as you go. But nonetheless, the enormous increase, increase in the cost of land at the top levels is going to cause a change. I discuss all of these issues because, to my mind, if you're looking at the wines of France, as I do in the, the latest book, it's not enough just to know this is what Gervais Chambertin tastes like. You might want to ask, well, if I get interested in it, will I still be able to get it in 10 years' time? Or will the changes that are occurring in Burgundy make this a problem for me? And what is your answer to that question? I mean, what do you hazard as a guess? It's just going to get more expensive to the point at which people who are interested in wine but not rich or not passionate enough will decide that there are other places they can find wine. And one of the things that you say about the bulk market, which you just explained, that sometimes it's difficult to make money in, in the old world, is that that's a real old world problem, whereas in the new it's world... It's an old it's world problem, partly because of the classification scheme. In France, if you want to put a wine out as Bordeaux, it must come from Bordeaux. Fair enough. But if you want to make a major brand in the new world, you can get your grapes from anywhere you want. You give it a brand name. And in fact, in order to ensure consistency, uh, most major brands in the new world have a variety of sources and they will blend those sources in such a way that the final product is consistent. That would be much more difficult in France, both because it's not accustomed to blend wine from different regions and because your sources are generally too small. You would need so many different individual sources to put a brand together that it becomes very difficult and not very cost-effective. So at the level of brands which have large market penetration, France, and indeed the, all of Europe, is at a major disadvantage. What's it been like writing in the wine field? It can be a little frustrating. There is a strange disconnect, if you like, which I've never quite understood. 
which is that you can write books on sociology, on history, biography, at uh, an academic level, of course, or you can write them at a popular level. And this is regarded as a perfectly reasonable thing to do. You can be at a university writing history books, which can be appreciated by a layman, and they will sell quite well. For some reason, which I don't understand, wine is not really regarded as an appropriate subject for intellectual discourse. So there isn't anything really comparable in the wine literature. There are academic books where people look in very dry, abstruse fashion at things like the medieval wine trade in England or whatever. But there's nothing really which says to the average consumer or person who's just interested out there, this is about a wine-related subject. It's a sort of caricature of wine books, which is you give a little bit of potted history of the, the region, uh, you talk a bit about some of the producers, maybe you do a little bit on restaurants and food of the region, and that's your wine book. But that's not, that's not a very analytical or intellectual process. And if you applied that to, let us say, biography or history, it wouldn't be regarded as a very good book. For some reason, wine books are regarded differently, both by publishers and possibly by the public. I don't know. What I have tried to do is to write wine books that are a little different, that take the, the same attitude that historians or biographers take. I can write about a subject at a, in a way that is rigorous and informative, but which is interesting to someone who is not an academic in the subject. I would like very much for wine to be regarded as an appropriate subject for this type of treatment, written about in a way which is analytical and intellectually interesting, but which isn't academic. As I say, for some reason, which I don't understand, wine books have never been regarded as an appropriate subject to be treated in that way, comparable to history, sociology, biography, whatever. The publishing houses either want a travel guide that has a little bit of history in it, or they want a romance story under the vines, like a la A Year in Provence or something like that. There are really two sorts of wine books that succeed. One consists of travel books, and the other consists of atlases. Uh, you know, an atlas which says, here are all the wine regions of the world. This is very successful. And in the same way, atlases in smaller areas are successful. Encyclopedias can succeed too, but that's really about the limit. You can do a travel book, you can do an encyclopedia, or you can do a map, an atlas. But that's only a small part of what should be the whole area of wine books. And do you think that atlases are still popular because it's harder to replicate the detail of the pictures online? I think online is a difficult issue because... The formats for electronic publication are not very friendly to graphics, by and large. And wine books tend to need to have quite a lot of graphics. It's very difficult to understand the wine region unless you have a map to see what's related to what. You want to put in pictures of the vineyard to show what they really look like. And with the electronic publication format, text comes out very well, but graphics don't come out so well. And that might be why online hasn't really penetrated the wine market yet. Although you would think that online would be an absolute natural for travel guides, much easier to take with you. I am, in fact, at the moment, uh, the project is to put Wines of France into an electronic format, not as a single book, but as seven individual guides to the regions which are discussed, Alsace, the Loire, Bordeaux, Burgundy, Champagne, the Rhone, Languedoc and Provence, and to do each of those as a separate guide where there is material which basically comes from the book about the region, the text, the pictures of the vineyards, and so on, some maps to show where the producers are located, and profiles of the individual producers. 
and we'll see how that works. It's a technically a little difficult to get the format so it looks really good on a small screen. If we can overcome that, maybe this will be a successful project. Because a small screen is a mobile screen, and so much of people's interaction with the internet has gone mobile. Yes, yes. If you, on, on a large computer screen, this would be easy. But what you have to do if you're doing some sort of guide like this is provide something which people can take with them. You know, one nice thing to do is to be able to say to people, here are 10 producers in this region who are interesting to visit. Uh, here is where they are located on a map. So you can figure out you know, which ones you can reasonably see in, in a period of time when you are. But you need to be able to do that on the road, as it were. Did you think that it would have been possible to write the books that you did without access to your own publishing press? It would have been difficult. I talked to conventional publishers about the first book. And my problem was that all of the offers to publish it that I received were attached to conditions which I thought would not be helpful for making the book successful. Generally concerning production in some way, there were differences in how the publisher thought the book should be put together and how I thought it should be put together. And in the end, I decided that it was more important to do a good job and get out the sort of book which editorially I would be happy with than to have a conventional publisher do it. So I did it myself. And I have generally been pleased with that. Well, it seems like from your history with Cell, what you found was that quality would equal readership. Yes, I think the problem with conventional publishers is they have many interests. And the bottom line tends to be a much more important factor than it is when you're running an independent operation where you can say, the, the, the attitude we took with Cell was, let's get the quality right. And quality here means the judgment on what material to publish and technically how you publish it, what the paper is, whether it's got enough quality to show the photographs properly, this sort of stuff. Let's get all that right. And if we do get it right, then we will justify where we want to be in the marketplace. Whereas a conventional publisher would say, we can't afford to carry a loss for more than X months or years, and you will have to make whatever compromises are necessary to get that bottom line right. We didn't have to do that with Cell. We followed the path of quality first and let the economics sort themselves out later. One of the things about the wine books that is striking to me when I look at them is how many graphs and charts there are. How do you get the idea to do a, a graph about acreage or, or hectare? Well, that's my scientific background, I suppose. But it seems to me if you say something like, for example, the proportion of Cabernet Sauvignon in Bordeaux has been increasing, it's not obvious what that means. If you show a graph and you can look at it and say, hey, it was 30% in 1985, and it's 45% in 2000 or whatever, you can see how it went up and what happened. And it's the old story, a picture is worth a thousand words. If you can see the effect, I think that's much more powerful than just making a statement. It has a disadvantage, which is that some people do look at the book and say, it's got graphs in it, I'm not interested. That's always a risk that people who just basically feel themselves to be innumerate will say, I'm not interested because it's got a graph in it. Uh, well, I'm sorry, you don't have to look at the graphs, you can just read the text if you want. But in all honesty, it's much easier to understand what's going on if you look at a graph or a pie chart or a histogram or whatever, which lets you see in a visual format what's happened. What else are aspects of publishing you have to consider for how a reader is going to perceive your book? Well, the conventional stuff is fairly simple, laying out the book so it makes sense. You know, if you talk about some particular place and there's a picture of the place, you'd like to have that picture close to where you talk about it. I think more to the point is really trying not to get bogged down in the detail. 
The risk in writing a book like Wines of France is you get bogged down in an enormous amount of detail. You have to cut through that. My, my compromise on this is to put the detail into footnotes at the very back of the book. So anybody who's really interested in the nitty-gritty can go and look it up at the back in the appendix. But um, the main text will just give you the outlines. This is really what you want to know without getting too confused by details. If I think there's one issue you really have to resolve when you write a book like this, it's, it's don't baffle people with too many details in the main text. And what about sales? How big of a factor is it in your life? How do you go about approaching it? It's not a factor at all not really much of a factor at all. I've always written, this goes all the way back to the science books, genes and so on. I've written the book which I thought was interesting and coherent and which, is, which uh, makes sense as an intellectual project. And it'd be nice if people buy it. If they don't, too bad. But there is a, a move in publishing, more than a move. In fact, I say it's the dominant force these days, and certainly in scientific publishing, which is where I know most, to go out to look at the courses which are taught in the universities and say we will tailor the book for those courses. I think this is absolutely intellectually wrong because it takes no account of what is going to change over the next period of time. What you have to ask yourself is what should people know? And the tack I took with my science books, and it's similar with the wine books, is to say what is it that people should know, let's tell them. And then if this is a subject in science, if this is the subject for um, courses, the courses will follow. And that, in fact, happened. When I, start, when I wrote Genes, uh, several publishers turned it down because they said it doesn't fit the courses. And they simply were not persuaded that that would change. Uh, we wrote the book. It was actually published, the first edition, by John Wiley. And in a short period of time, people started writing. People, now that they had a book, people started doing the courses. Is there a topic in wine that you think... I mean, beyond the level of approach, which you already addressed, but is there a topic of wine where you think, boy, really, it's odd that no one addresses that? I couldn't say that there is. I mean, there are topics which are addressed in very offbeat ways or which are very controversial. So, you know, the level of rising alcohol in wine is something which many people are concerned about, but it's not often addressed because it's just too much of a hot potato. I was at one trade tasting, where I asked a producer what is the level of alcohol in this wine. I just wanted to see if it correlated with what I was tasting. And I got an answer, and then she gave me a very piercing look and said, but you don't want to go asking that question around here. And clearly it wasn't a welcome question. If you ask a producer how much alcohol, they will be defensive about it. And the usual answer is, what does it matter if the wine is balanced? Uh, my feeling, however is that it's not high alcohol by itself that distorts the flavor of a wine. Technically, you can have a wine with 14.5% alcohol, which is well-balanced. The problem is that in order to make it well-balanced, you have to have a very high level of dry extract. And when you've done that, the whole wine becomes really fatiguing. Yes, it's balanced, but no, it's not what I want to drink. What do you think your next project will be? I'm going to do a second edition of Wine Myths and Reality. In fact, I'm, I'm working on that at the moment. It's interesting when you... This was a book which was written only about six years ago, and already quite a lot has changed in some wine regions. I was in Germany a couple of weeks ago, and as a result, I'm completely rewriting the chapter on Germany. Just so much has changed in Germany in six years, mostly the culmination of the transition from making sweet wine to making dry wine. Last time I was in Germany, that was in sort of full swing, but it hadn't yet completed. Now it's really a sea change. And so I'm going, going to spend the next two years, actually, revising wine myths and reality, visiting people, seeing what's changed. I'm going to 
put out the second edition under a different title called Modern Wine, because that reflects more what its target is, to explain what wine is like today and how it is. And I'm expecting producers to have the same sort of attitude, which is, no, I'm not modern, why are you here to see me? But that's fine. It will provoke, perhaps, some good discussion about what is modern and what should be modern. Is both drier wine in Germany and the rise of what we maybe would consider modern wine, are those both reactions to climate change? The dry wine in Germany is a reaction to climate change. Not so much that it's been forced by climate change, but in the sense that 20 years ago, when they made dry wine in Germany, it was really, really acid. And you would have to leave an awful lot of sugar in to balance the acidity and make the wine pleasant, so it wasn't dry. Today, they say, we can make dry or almost dry wine. We can make it very well because we have a much greater degree of ripeness because we're having better vintages. So this is a case where climate warming has been the enabler, I suppose. It's not the driving force because they could certainly continue to make the wines they've made in the past, but they are enabled by climate warming to make dry wines that they couldn't have done before. When you return to wines in your own cellar, have you found yourself to be a different person or have the wines changed or has both happened? I think both. I approach them more analytically than I did before I became a master of wine because the program gave me an analytical approach to wine, which I didn't have before. But the wines themselves, my own taste is towards wines in a slightly more reserved style, you might say. And so there are wines which I have, um, which now for me are too rich. And I can see that other people will love them, but they're not quite what I like. But you know, it's a continual process. I keep tasting notes on all the wines that I drink. And one of the nice things about that is when I open a wine I've had before, I can see my previous tasting note. And it's 50-50 as to whether it goes, I understood this wine last time round, and I made a pretty good projection as to what would happen to it in five years, or it's a totally different wine, how could I ever have had that experience with, with it before? And that's what I like about it. I open a wine with a certain expectation, but I never know if that expectation is going to be fulfilled or if I'm going to have something completely different as an experience. Do you ever wish that you hadn't done the science part, that you had just gone directly into the wine trade? No, because I think that... First of all, tools to approach wine in the way I approach it now weren't there 30 years ago. And I think it would have been very difficult to take the sort of approach to wine that I take 20 or 30 years ago. And I enjoyed doing science. It was intellectually very stimulating. I'm pleased to have made a transition because I think it was time to do something different. But I don't regret having done science before. Benjamin Lewin, he's found the tools that work for him to determine what a wine is, and he'd like to share them with you. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Benjamin Lewin, wine writer and author. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. 
remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.